respond. If you had to respond to the question, who is great in our church, how would you respond? Who are the servants in our local church? How many believers do you know that have a life goal of being a servant? They're just passionate about being a servant. Why are we we even concerned in our culture today about being great? Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark. Chapter 9, we'll begin reading with verse 30. Mark, chapter 9 and verse 30. Mark, chapter 9 and verse 30, this comes after the transfiguration. And then the healing of the boy with an evil spirit where the evil spirit was cast out. Mark 9 and verse 30. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Setting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him into his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name. And we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt loses its saltiness, How can it be made salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Jesus makes some statements in this passage that are very much against the culture of the religion of that day and also against the culture of religion today. 
we must remember the character, the being, the identity of Jesus Christ as revealed in Mark. We know that in Mark, Jesus is unique. He's the Son of God. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He is sensitive to God's Spirit. And he has been able to resist Satan. In chapter 1, when he was tempted, he resisted Satan. Here in chapter 9, just in the previous passage, he healed or cast out an evil spirit from a boy. This identity, this being, this character of Jesus is demonstrated in his words and actions. He proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Mark. He taught with authority. He quieted and cast out an evil spirit. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. He healed various diseases and drove out many demons. He prayed. He talked to his father. He preached in the synagogues and drove out demons. And we could go on and on and come up and list probably about 25 to 30 items that Jesus did as he ministered and Mark writes to the Roman believers to encourage them as they go through persecution to say, here's who you follow. As you look at this passage that we read, how is it related? At first glance, the passage seems to talk about a variety of things, and there's no relationship. But the overriding theme of the passage in verses 30 through 50 is the idea of humility and suffering. The humility of Christ, the suffering of Christ, and the fact that he calls his followers to suffer. And that theme is established in verses 31 and 32. Well, 30 through 32. He says, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed in the hands of sinners, or in the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. See, Jesus came. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be given to the hands of men, sinful men. He's going to die. He's being rejected. Why? Because he humbled himself and became obedient as a servant. That humility and that humbleness and obedience is because of following Christ. So the theme is established as humility and suffering. Jesus then teaches to instill an attitude of humility. His disciples are arguing, and what does he say? If anyone wants to be first, and so on. He's teaching how to be humble, how to endure suffering. He gives warning against pride. And he receives the powerless. Here's the 12 arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus says, what were you arguing about? And no one responds. They were the opposite of being humble. He appeals for mercy to be shown to outsiders. In verses 38 through verse 41 we find that someone is casting out or doing miracles. The disciples said, let's stop them. And Jesus said, no. Let them go on. 
Don't be so haughty and proud and think that no one else can do anything. In verse 42, he gives a warning against causing the little ones to sin. And if anyone causes these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Be humble. Don't be proud by how you treat little ones. And then in verses 43 through 50, he says some very strong things about the necessity of suffering. And that would be the conviction as we discuss the passage in weeks to come in 43 through 50 about cutting off your hand or your foot, pulling out your eye and so on. He's talking about suffering as one follows Christ. So the focus of the passage is humility. It is suffering. He seeks to teach the twelve. And if you look at verse 30, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not know, want to know, did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching the disciples. You'll find over and over again, it seems like Jesus took the twelve and he taught them. And what does he teach them? The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Three times in the Gospel, Mark Jesus predicts his suffering, his rejection, and his going to the cross. This is the second time. And in each of the three times he mentions his suffering, his rejection, he talks about there has to be suffering. I have to die, I have to be killed, and I will be raised. This is the second time Jesus speaks about his coming rejection and suffering. The first one was in chapter 8, 31 through chapter 9 and verse 1. But the disciples don't grasp what's happening. They didn't grasp it then, they don't grasp it now. It seems their belief system concerning the Messiah is hindering them from understanding. They could not or did not want to believe that suffering and death was involved in Christ being the Messiah. Our beliefs influence how we live and how we respond. Suffering is presented. The suffering Jesus is presented in Scripture. Suffering followers of Christ is presented in Scripture. And there is no glory without suffering. Then in verses 33 through 37, Jesus is again dealing with humility, so to speak. Talks about greatness in the kingdom of God. Jesus asked them, you know, what they're arguing about, and they just kept quiet. But what had they been arguing about? Who was the greatest? See, they still are not understanding that Christ humbled himself and is going to become obedient to death. They didn't grasp that. So what do they do? They live the opposite. They're proud. Driving home the need for humbleness. These instructions 
and object lessons form an extended commentary on Jesus' call to self-denial and cross-bearing, which was ratified by the drive ultimatum at the transfiguration of Christ to hear him. See, the 12 are still arguing. They're not seeing Jesus as suffering, going through difficulty. They're arguing who is the greatest. In each of the three accounts of Jesus speaking about suffering, he talks about suffering, he talks about rejection, he talks about going to the cross, he talks about resurrection. And after each one of those three circumstances, we find the disciples are proud and haughty and looking out for themselves. In chapter 8 and verse 31, we find that Jesus talks about being rejected by men, going to the cross and coming from the dead. And what does Peter do? Peter rebukes Jesus and says, Jesus, that's not going to happen. In the present passage, 9.30 through 32, we find that Jesus talks about his being killed, suffering, rising from the dead, and what happens? The twelve argue about who is the greatest. Suffering, rejection, humility, pride, arrogance, who's the greatest? In chapter 10, 34, or 33 and 34, we find again Jesus predicts his suffering, his rejection, his going to the cross, his resurrection, and what comes after that. There's a request to set on the right hand and the left hand of Christ. Jesus is driving home, as Mark writes, humility and suffering, not proud and haughtiness. For the last time in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus returns to Capernaum in verse 33. They came to Capernaum. The house he enters carries the definite article in Greek, which indicates a per particular house, perhaps Peter's house. Houses in Mark are often the place where instruction took place, where Jesus sat down with the twelve and would teach them how to live, how to respond, how to be followers. The question Jesus offers in this circumstance is simple and direct. What were you talking about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. The word argue means to dispute or contest. And it's a fairly strong word. You know, the twelve are disputing who's the greatest, Peter, John, James. He knew what they were arguing about, but he gives them opportunity to respond. See, questions give the opportunity to respond. So when my brothers and I would get to fighting when we were kids and dad came in and said, boys, what's going on here? He's given an opportunity for us to fess up, to own up and say, I'm I was wrong. But they just keep quiet because they had been arguing about who's the greatest. The Gospels do not record their exact words. But undoubtedly, some, such as Peter, James, and John, may have argued that they were the greatest. Remember, they were in the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. They were the inner circle. 
They had heard teaching which others had not heard. Peter may very well have told the other two, listen, men, it's got to be one of us three, Peter, James, or John, myself, or James, or John, but I think it's got to be me because I'm kind of the leader. To this, James and John, who are called the sons of thunder, probably responded in a loud manner and objected, not you, Peter, but probably one of us. The rest would have none of it because they were noble. And some of them were out doing well and doing ministry while the other three were on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Miserable affair. Twelve men that he had trained for almost three years already, arguing about who's the greatest after he taught them about his humiliation, his suffering. What a chill this must have been to the burden of, or to the heart of Christ. They were no different from the petty politicians of Capernaum and the men in Herod's court. Something had to be done. See, the twelve were unwilling to take responsibility. They were unwilling to admit reality. Their lack of response shows their heart. He doesn't press them for an answer, but teaches them a lesson. If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. The twelve were preoccupied with rank. Like we're preoccupied with rank today. The religious community of Jesus' day was preoccupied with rank. See, in Judaism, the Rabonic writings would frequently comment on the seating order in paradise and argue who would sit nearest to the throne of God, even closer than the angels. The earthly order of that day was to have certain seating at worship, at meals. And there was a pattern of authority within the community. People were dealt with as inferior or superior in preparation for the eternal order to come. The rule of the community in one area of Israel at that time would prescribe the proper order of procession for entering the rule. First priests, then Levites, and in third place all the people shall enter, one after another, in thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, so that all the children of Israel may know their standing in God's community, in conformity with the eternal plan. And no one moves up or down from his rank or his lot. Does that sound any different from today? See, Jesus talked about surrendering his life. The twelve were talking about fulfilling theirs. Jesus talked about the cost of discipleship. The twelve are counting its assets for their own life. The twelve have yet to learn that the rewards of discipleship come only as a consequence of following Christ in suffering.
Jesus says, after he cast out a demon, I'm going to be killed. After I'm turned over to the hands of men, and after three days I will rise. And they argue about who's the greatest. An application. Use questions in your daily life to seek to teach and to train others. Questions provide an opportunity for others to take responsibility. Do that as a parent. So many times as parents, something happens in the home and we jump in our kids and we correct them immediately. Maybe we need to step back and say, children, I heard a lot of noise coming from this room a few minutes ago. What was going on? And just like the 12, just like the Pharisees in Mark 3, they're silence. Because no one is willing to say, we get into a fight and I'm the one who started it. Sometimes as parents, we ask, why? We already know why kids don't obey. We already know why kids fight. Because they're part of the human race, they're chips off the old block. We're sinful, we struggle with sin. But asking a what question makes a difference. Because it gives them opportunity for them to respond. So you have instructed your son or daughter to be home by 10 o'clock and they show up at 10.30 and you're standing at the door ready to tear them to pieces. Maybe you need not to stand at the door. Maybe you shouldn't tear them to pieces. Maybe they get in and you hear them a little and you go in and you say, just was wondering, you could, could you tell me what took place that you get home late? See, now that's letting them be responsible. Well, I just got talking to Ruth Ann too long, and I wasn't paying attention to the clock, so I get home late. I'll try to do better next time, Dad. So I'm taking responsibility. What took place at your home late? Well, Dad, did you know that uh, I had a flat tire on the way home? And if it goes back to my day, I didn't have a cell phone, Dad. <laughs> So there's no way of getting hold of you. Sorry. See, that stands in contrast to jumping on the child and immediately get, getting on their case. Let them take responsibility. That's what Jesus is doing here. What were you arguing about? Their silence indicates they were being proud and haughty. Ever stop to think about what it looks like to be an employer? Dealing with an employee. So the end product doesn't look too good as someone's building a house and the employer comes around one day and says, what in the world happened over here? And the three guys on the job just say nothing. Well, they're admitting something happened. But one of them steps up to the task and says, well, here's what happened. And explains what happened. 
And the boss says, well, it can't be that way. You're going to have to change it. But see, it gives an opportunity for a person to respond. How about a teacher? Whether it be in Awana or Sunday school or some other aspect. So you're teaching a group of Awana kids about striving to be obedient to mom and dad, and you pose a question to them. What is at the root of all family arguments? I'm assuming your family argues every now and then. What's at the root of all family arguments? My brother, my sister. Oh, is that what you think? Well, let's go to Romans 3 and find out that at the root is you. Because if you always responded correctly, there's not going to be an argument. Because it takes two to get into trouble. Or if you're an elder, a church leader, asking a question, using the what more than the why. We humans struggle with comparing ourselves with others and being the best or the greatest. This is true in professing Christianity and in the world. Jesus is talking about his humility. He's talking about being rejected. He's obeying his father and he's going to be killed. And then he's going to come from the dead. And in all three times when he talks about that in the Gospel of Mark, the twelve get into this deal of, look at me, I'm the greatest, who's the greatest? Peter says, you shouldn't go to the cross. We live in that culture. They did in that day, we do today. You ever stop to think about and competition is based on comparison to determine who the greatest is? I'm not saying competition is right or wrong. It's not my point. But it's based upon comparison. Someone has to be the greatest. It's terrible to have a tie game. No one won. We're not the greatest. Again, I'm not knocking sports. That's not my point. I'm just saying, understand the culture, the world in which we live. Sports at almost any level is competitive. Penn State gets on the field. Their goal is to let the other team show how great they are. The coach will have something to say about that. Here's Jesus being humble, obeying his father, going to be rejected and be killed. And the 12 are arguing. See, that creeps into the religious community. YFC years ago, when Ruth Ann and I went to Ocean City for the quote-unquote religious competition, I went as a preacher boy. And my goal was to be first, to be the greatest. Here I am, speaking about Godly things, in the back of my mind, all of us wanted to be first. My point is, that's the culture in which we live. We struggle with comparison. Pastors and missionaries will talk about numbers and buildings and finances. I know. I associate with them. Oh, how many come to your church? How many do you have there last Sunday? How's your budget doing? Are you beyond your budget? 
missionaries, oh, how many people did you get saved this year and so on? We're dealing with 12 men here who are being trained to lead. And they're arguing about who's the greatest. And church leaders today are not above it. Their leaders want numbers. Sometimes we're better, so we hang on to our ministry and don't train someone else. I was talking to a retired pastor some time back, and he chose to remain in the church which he had pastored for a number of years. And when the younger fellow came along, And he said he was talking to the younger fellow. He said, I want you to know that my desire and my prayer is that you will do well. And I trust that you do better than I did. Humility. Willingness to step back and let someone come on the scene and take over responsibility. What is Jesus' response to this pride This argument about who is the greatest. If anyone would come after me. Or wants to be first rather. He must be the very last. And servant of all. In a religious community. Which emphasized greatness which emphasized a pecking order. Jesus says, you want to be first, you have to be the very last and the servant of all. When was the last time you heard a believer say, my passion in life is to be a servant? See, I didn't go to Ocean City with a mindset, I want to serve others. I went to Ocean City with a mindset, I got to be the best, I want to be number one. God knocked that out of, from under me because I came in last. And he began to whittle away, Dan, you're not in life. It's not about you, it's not about how great you are, it's not whether you're first in the Pennsylvania FFA and you're president or you're youth group leader, it's whether or not you're a servant. I would pose a question. Have you humbled yourself by admitting you're dead in your transgressions and sins? Have you come to repentance of sin and faith in Christ? See, that's the first step of humility. I'm sinful. Christ is the only solution to my sin. Are you known as a humble person or a proud person? Ask those who know you well and those who will be honest with you. And what am I like, honey? What am I like? Am I proud or am I humble? Hey, kids, grandkids, what am I like? Am I proud or am I humble? If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. Are you a servant to those who are considered low or rejected in our culture today? How has the Lord spoken to you? 
will you respond with, yes, Lord. I want to respond in an obedient manner to how you have spoken to me. Now close with an illustration. Two weeks ago when Ruth Ann and I were in the Poconos, we went through the yellow pages in the phone directory to find a church that we wanted to go to. And we had seen a small church on the way into where we stayed. And we found a couple others, and I called and didn't get any response from any of them, you know, because of when I called, I guess Sunday morning early. <laughs> so we opted to go to a church just off Interstate 84. And uh, we walked in and you know, thought Sunday school class was interesting and thought-provoking and listened to what the pastor had to say. And we went back Sunday night, and after church, got to talking some with the pastor. How long have you been here? Well, I've been here 25 years now. Where did you graduate from? He came from Lancaster Bible College. We talked about some other things, some of the joys and struggles of being a pastor. And I thought to myself, and I wrote him a note this week just to express some of that. There's a humble man who's ministered in a setting that probably very few will ever know about beyond that area and just faithfully ministered God's word and continues to do that. If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and servant of all. It's not about where we are in life. It's not about how big of our influence. Some have big, some have small. Both are fine. But where's our heart? Let's reflect on that as we close with a song, Majesty. Travis? Travis?